This episode is sponsored by Macmillan Audio. This fall, I'm on the lookout for audiobooks to keep me company while I wait for the school bus or run errands. Thank You for Sharing by Rachel Runya Katz is the perfect romance to sweep me away during those moments. Narrated by Tyla Collier and Raymond Lee, this is a chemistry-filled, childhood-friends-to-lovers debut romance about two people forced to confront their pasts to save both their relationships and careers. Start listening to Thank You for Sharing by Rachel Runya Katz now, wherever audiobooks are sold. Hello and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zara-Bapinski, and today Boston author Virginia Pye is here to discuss the literary undoing of Victoria Swan, a historical novel which she calls a love letter to books and authors and to the literary city she adores. It came to be as she imagined being a young woman writing books in Boston's male-dominated publishing industry of the 19th century. Virginia Pye is an award-winning author of novels and short stories, Her short story collection, Shelf Life of Happiness, won the 2019 Independent Publisher Gold Medal for Short Fiction, and one of its stories was nominated for a Pushcart Prize. Her debut novel, River of Dust, was an Indie Next pick and a 2013 finalist for the Virginia Literary Award. Her second novel, Dreams of the Red Phoenix, was named a Best Book by the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Virginia grew up in Cambridge and moved back after 35 years living up and down the East Coast. Virginia, thanks for coming on A Bookish Home, and congratulations on the literary undoing of Victoria Swan. I loved it so much, um, especially being um, from the Boston area, and as soon as I heard that it was going to be about a woman writer in the Boston publishing industry of long ago, I was hooked, um, and I'm so excited to hear more about it today. That is great. Well, I am so happy to be here, and I really love your podcast, and I've just been listening to a whole bunch of the past ones, and they are all terrific. These You get great authors, and it's really a, a wonderful thing that you do. So, And I'm really happy that you like my book. That That's a thrill. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much, and it's um, very fun to have you here. And um, so I guess just to start, for listeners who um, are new to the novel, I would love to hear um, more about um, Victoria Swan and sort of the world that you bring to life in this book. Absolutely, sure. Um, well, this is a novel that's set in Boston and Cambridge in the Gilded Age. So it takes place in 1899. And it tells the story of an author of romance and adventure novels, um, highly successful author, um, who ends up suing her Boston publisher for underpaying her as a woman. And so it follows Victoria Swan. At the start of the book, it opens, and she is very successful. She's known throughout, I guess, the the country or the East Coast, anyway, um, for her um, her her series of books that um, are sort of sensational romances and adventure stories. And her um, arc is that she would like to stop writing those write something more personal, write something more about her own true life, not these made up crazy stories that she's been inventing for a decade. Um, But she's held back from doing that by both her publisher, who counts on the income from her successful dime novels, and also her husband, who also relies on her financially. 
So we have this, she's, she has the, the men in her life who are, are not wanting her to change and she very much wants to change. And so it's sort of a dynamic right from the start where we see that, um, she wants to find her own voice on the page and also in her life. Um, and one thing that I found really interesting in my research that helped propel this story was learning a little bit about the women authors of that later um, 1800s. And it, it's kind of remarkable that women ended up sort of taking over publishing in the mid 1800s. In 1850, books cost a dollar to a dollar fifty, and were not available to most people. It was too expensive. But by the 1860s, the price had dropped down to these dime novels, literally a dime, these thin pamphlets that women in particular bought. And suddenly they were selling by the hundreds of millions. So it's not unrealistic that Victoria would have been so successful and, um, and you know, would get such a nice income from that, those types of books. Um, it's also interesting yeah. that at that, yeah, all these women, young women especially, were coming in from the farms to work in the offices and the factories and as domestics. And they needed something to do in their boarding houses. Um, they were no longer on their parents' farms, you know, milking the cows or getting up early. And so they turned to reading. And the public school systems had increased, uh, had increased literacy. And so suddenly you had a whole new readership. So Victoria wants to take advantage of all of this and write to the women, the young women especially, whose real life stories she has come to know through her own experience and also from getting to know some of these women. And um, so it's it's sort of a fun story because it's both about what happens in the books that she writes and what happens in her life. So yeah, um, that's so interesting. Yeah. I feel like I feel like I should know more about, um, you know, the publishing history of, of Boston around that time. And I really don't. So it's so interesting that in a short span, the books become so much more affordable. And then at the same time, you've got this increasing readership of all, you know, these women workers with maybe some, um, you know, some of their own money to spend on books yep. and, and how that would have created demand for certain sorts of books. And uh, that, that's so interesting. And so right. how did you go about, um, you know, creating the Victoria character and were there particular women writers of the time you were able to find um, a lot of research on, like letters or diaries or things like that? Well, actually, I did. Um, I, I got the reason why I, I wrote this book in the first place was that I moved back to actually Cambridge after literally 35 years away. I lived in um, Hartford, um, New York City, Philadelphia, and then Richmond, Virginia um, in the interim and loved all those cities. But when I moved to Boston and Cambridge, I was immediately struck by how much, how often people, I could see people reading and how much um, fuss was made over our historic authors here. And just in general, how people read, read, read all the time. You can see them on the subway reading, people are reading. I literally in Cambridge see people walking down the street reading as they're, as they're strolling. And I, that's, that's really hard to imagine, but it's true. <laughs> and um, so I was really struck by that. And I started to wonder as I was seeing all of these markers around the city um, for historic male writers, for the 
Emerson's and the Thoreau and the Longfellow and the Hawthorne and W.E.B. Du Bois and Robert Frost, T.S. Eliot, Henry James. I'm serious. The list goes on and on. And you bump into them all the time. And I was just starting to think, what must it have been like? Like, I could feel myself being in the shadow of those greats. What would it have been like to be writing at that time as a woman? And then I started to do a little research into that and realized that with the exception of Margaret Fuller, who was a esteemed essayist um, and considered a peer to many of these men, and Louisa May Alcott, who ended up having a breakout novel with Little Women, and I know, um, uh, you know, several others stood out. But what about all the other women who, as it turns out, were writing these many, many books that were being produced and just gobbled up by by new readers. And so I knew that they would be looked down upon. And in my research a little bit uh, about um, the publishing industry here, it was clear that these women writers would have been thought of as hacks and not worthy of sort of the attention they were getting or the sales or any of that. And so I had a lot of fun playing around with that. Um, and that, in my research, I went to the Schlesinger library. It's, it's, it's a library for women's history, and it's at Radcliffe College, now Harvard. And I literally came upon two or three sentences about a woman essayist from Concord, Mass, who sued her Boston publisher, the esteemed company of Tinkner and Fields, for underpaying her as a woman. And she did this in the 1860s. She lost, but uh, apparently it shook the publishing industry. They were shocked that such a thing could happen, that a woman would have the audacity to do that, that anybody would even think of that as an option. You know, that it was really just perceived that a woman should feel lucky to be published, um, mm. no matter what she was being paid. <laughs> Sound familiar, right? So, I was going to say there's and, just so many modern, so many modern echoes, the pay inequality and even just, you know, the perceptions about, male, very literary authors versus um, more like commercial um, women authors and, and sort of the Absolutely. snobbery in, in publishing sometimes and gosh, Absolutely. so much hasn't changed. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I ended up writing an essay that's going to come out very soon in uh, Writer's Digest that's sort of about this, that basically the whole notion that we had in the I guess it's the 80s and 90s of chiclet, and now it's women's fiction. Um, you know, it goes back. There's a real history to this and how repeatedly women readers and women writers have saved the publishing industry and have helped it expand and go. So what happened in the late 1800s was these had always been family-run businesses, the publishing houses. And because of the income coming in from the women readers and writers, they could expand to becoming actual larger companies with more employees and greater distribution via the railroads, et cetera. So anyway, it's, it's, the parallels are uncanny. And um, I just kept thinking about that and just having a lot of fun with it. And, you know, and, and also just having a lot of fun with my main character who um, doesn't really, she doesn't strike you as somebody who's going to be the leader of a crusade on behalf of women, but she sort of gets drawn into that role. And, um, and you know, I ended up sort of loving that about her. Yeah, I loved reading yeah. about that. And, and some of the other sort of literary, um, just 
experiences in the novel, I guess. So like the bookstore that appears in the novel is very fun to read about. And, and then I wondered too, there's like a literary society she's a part of. And I wondered if that was a real thing or, or something um, that you just Don't, kind of added. Yeah. No, actually, you know, I loved finding out about that. It turns out that in the 1800s, um, there were lots and lots of societies, or I think they were called societies. I've done, it's been a little while since I did my research, but I discovered that um, there were literary societies and other types of societies that people had at their place of work. So you could be somebody who's, you know, works for the tool and die union, uh, so laborer, and yet you could take part in their literary society, or you could be part of the laundresses, you know, society and or group, and then you could also take part in, I mean, they literally had, they had um, just lots and lots of these things that were had to do with literacy and reading, but also uh, crafts and um, learning manners, learning um, I don't know, just all these different skills that were teaching life skills. And it had to do with um, trying to teach new immigrants coming into the country, but it also had to do with helping these young women who had never lived on their own before. Um, and so uh, I found that fascinating too. And I kind of wished that I could include much more about that, but I had to pare that back because I loved right. the thought of that. I was like, wow, what if every single um, you know, company in the U.S. also had a literary society, had a, what would we call a book group, essentially a book group. Wouldn't that um, be nice? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, why not? You know, it's, it's, yeah. there's a real history to this. There's a real historical precedent. Well, yeah. I wanted to ask too, so, um, you know, you're writing about an author. I think it's something that a lot of, a lot of writers, um, also like writing about writers and reading about writers. Um, and it made me kind of wonder about your own sort of journey um, toward publication. And I read somewhere that you um, had gotten a first literary agent um, a while back, but you were writing for a long time without being published and kind of having to sort of persevere in that way. Could you talk a little bit about your writing journey and how that's unfolded? Sure, sure. I'm happy to. And just, it's so funny, I, I listened to your interview with Jane Roper, who's wonderful, oh, yeah, yep. Society of Shame. And she made a funny comment. She said, every writer gets to write one book about a writer. And that's <laughs> it. We're going to cut you off after that. And I agree with her. And I had never done it before. Honestly, my characters were far removed from being writers or about sort of art making, particularly. But, um, but this really is my own uh, this is my book about what it's like to be a writer. And so it's sort of a love story to fellow writers, particularly women writers, and also um, just to the act of writing and to finding one's voice in life on the, on, off the page, on the page and off the page, you know, how to, how to find who you really are and put it out there um, both through writing and in life. And, um, and so for me, that has been an interesting journey. Um, I always wanted to be a writer and um, ended up studying it in school. And I went to graduate school, good graduate school, and had really fine teachers. Um, Annie Dillard was the first one who mentored me and then was lucky enough to study with Joan Silber and Alan Gerganis. So really wonderful people, really wonderful humans and great writing teachers. Anyway, and, um, and then I got a hotshot agent right out of grad school. And sadly, she wasn't able to place my first book. 
I was 27 and I kind of thought I was going to be the next thing, hot thing. And I had to put that book aside and then wrote another one that was interrupted in its arc because I started to have children and I had two children and kept writing on my own, but didn't really seek out agents or being published for a full, almost a full decade. Um, and then when I went back to it, right after my second child went off to nursery school, I wrote another novel, new novel, and maybe this is my third by now, and got a different agent, and she tried to sell it and didn't have luck, came close, um, and oh my gosh, I kind of lose track. But anyway, I wrote another one, and um, eventually, uh, it was really interesting. I, I was very much active in whatever literary community was in the city where I lived, and um, became friends with a lot of fellow writers who I just admired so much and yet was still frustrated myself. And it took a long time, but I finally had a first book published when I was 53, a first novel. And in the past 10 years, because I'm 63 now, I've had four books published. And so it's sort of one of these things where, you know, I was holding back, I'm not holding back, but I was trying hard, but now the dam is broken and I have just sent a new novel out on submission, a next novel rather. And so it's all, it's, it's what I'm doing now full time. Um, I think I needed a lot of years to raise kids and be, be doing that with my life as well. So anyway. Were, were there any, oh, I was yeah. just going to ask, were there any of those books where you sort of thought, okay, if this one doesn't make it, like I'm done. Or did you always kind of feel like, no, this is, um, you know, something I'm just going to keep doing, even if, you know, even if it doesn't get published. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I, I'm definitely someone that this is what I do and I've been doing it for a really long time. And, you know, it's sort of the thing where you put more time into something, you put four years into a book, five years and you're, and, and then it's like, well, I can't just, I just can't ignore that. You know, you have to keep, keep trying. So in fact, I've taken two of the novels that didn't get published and I have revised them thoroughly. And now they're, they, they are now getting published. So in other oh, words, wow. there's always things you can go back to, you can resurrect, you can, if you're willing to kill your darlings and really chop up something that you've written from the past and, and bring it to new life, you know, just use part of it, just, um, uh, you know, don't, don't hold on to something that isn't working, but, but, um, you know, really find the gems in it and, and try to make something new. And I don't know, I don't really, this is what I do. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I haven't really thought of stopping. That's the answer to that. So for better or worse, you know, in other words, who knows how I would have spent my, my time otherwise, but <laughs> I do, I do love writing and I love I loved creating a character who loved writing so much. I've never written. There's actually a scene where she writes. Um, she's actually in the back. Um, Victoria's in the in the back room, in the stock room of a bookstore that is very much like Harvard Bookstore, where I'm going to be doing my launch. Um, and she writes an actual scene there. And I've never gone into the mind of a character who's writing. And it was so much fun because... I love that. I love the process of writing and why not actually see what that's like, the, the excitement behind that. So yeah, anyway. I love that scene. And I, I was wondering if it was um, 
sort of a version of Harvard Bookstore. Um, so that's, mm-hmm. good, that's kind of what you had in mind. Um, it is, it is. And there was this bookstore there more or less in that kind of location. It was called Brattle Books and then it moved to, to Boston um, many years ago. But but it's going to be so fun to do my actual launch there. Um, and then I'm doing a book talk at the Boston Athenaeum. And there is a scene set there, too. It's a private library that was opened at the time when my book is set. And it's going to be an absolute hoot to get to be in that setting that I ended up, you know, making up scenes in. Um, yeah, like, that's so What fun. could be more fun? Yeah. So the, the whole life and art thing overlapping and mirroring each other. And it just kind of goes on and on with this book. It's very fun. Yeah, for sure. It's very fun to read, um, to read about as well. Um, well, I I know that you also um, have taught at Grub Street as well. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I've done a little at, bit there at, at their at their conference, especially the Muse and Marketplace. Yeah. And I was just sort of wondering, um, you know, you've had all this experience now with, um, you know, your writing journey and the, all these books coming out, and um, I just sort of wondered how you approach teaching writers and if there's any particular um, advice or kind of words of wisdom that you find yourself giving um, often? Well, um, yeah, I do. And I I do end up um, sort of saying the same thing to basically anybody at every, at any and every stage of of their writing uh, journey. And that is to stick with it. So I guess it's back to your last question about, um, you know, whether I, whether somebody should decide to ever stop doing this, but, but the thing is that it, it practice, um, really, really helps. Um, the early novels that I wrote that didn't get published are not nearly as good as the ones that I wrote later that did get published and probably not as good as the ones that I'm going to publish. In other words, we keep, I feel we keep getting better. I keep getting better. And it, it just takes hours in your chair and kind of wrestling with ideas and with characters. It helps to show work to other people. But in my opinion, it's wise not to do that until you have a full first draft of a novel. Um, That's too easy to get sidetracked by other people's ideas. Um, And when somebody reads just a few chapters of a novel, it's not enough for other people to have, um, uh, you know, really worthwhile ideas, I don't think. So anyway, that's a little um, unorthodox because I know whole classes are taught at Grub Street and other places that are, you know, the novel uh, where people read it as you go along. But but I, I think it's really good to just make the work your own, stick with it, try to really flesh it out and then share um, and be prepared to revise like crazy and not, um, you know, not hold on to anything, even if it's your favorite part. Um, if it's not working, it's got to go. Do you uh, have trusted readers that you'll then maybe swap like whole drafts with? Or is that that mostly these days with your agent and editor? Yeah, I've done, well, actually it is with the agent and editor for sure with this book, um, but also some other fellow writers read it right after maybe I was done with the first one, first or second draft, and they helped enormously. Um, In fact, the whole character of uh, Victoria's editor is a young man 
named Jonathan Cartwright, who has just graduated from Harvard's PhD program in literature, which incidentally had just been invented. Nobody had ever had that concept <laughs> before. Isn't that funny? And, and funny. she's mystified, like, why would you study books? Why don't you just read them? You know, it's, it's just, it was a funny notion. Like, um, but anyway, in America, we'd never done that before. But um, anyway, he, um, oh golly, what was I just about to say? Uh, oh, so one of the your oh, yeah, readers had thoughts. Oh yeah, yeah, had some a genius idea about him. She just helped direct the course of the book uh, with one idea about him. He's a main character, and she just thought something about his love interest should be a little different than what I had in mind at first. And it totally improved the book and I had so much fun with it. So it's great to listen to other people's ideas. It's really important. So once once you have something to really share with them. Yeah. Yeah. And I could see giving a fuller picture of the novel being helpful sometimes as opposed to like a standalone chapter or something. I could see that being helpful. Um, Yes. Yes. Well, I know that, yeah, I know that given this book is sort of so rich in literary culture and history that um, there are probably some, um, you know, books that you have been reading lately that you enjoy. I'm I'm guessing that you're a big reader as well. Are there um, titles you'd want to recommend to listeners? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I have a really bad habit of falling in love with most of the books that I read. And at the time I'm reading, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the best book I've ever read. And then Later, I'm like, wait, what? Why would, Why was I so crazy about that one at that time? But a few do uh, from recent times totally stand out to me. And um, one is by a woman writer who I've gotten to know a little bit and who I'm actually going to be on a panel with at the Boston Book Festival, which I'm excited about. Um, and her name is Rachel Cantor. And the name of the book is Half-Life of a Stolen Sister. And this is also a historical novel, and it's set, if I'm remembering right, kind of around the same time as mine, although, no, no, I'm taking that back, it's earlier. Anyway, it's the story of the Bronte sisters, but it's told in the most unusual way, um, truly inventive and experimental even, um, which is unusual for a historical novel. Um, she delves into the lives of these different characters and um, even, it's hard to describe, but the story is set in the past, and yet it has elements that are very contemporary, and and in, and not quite in the same way that my book does, but literally like her characters can have cell phones, and they are you know hopping on the subway. Um, they live in New York City. They don't live in um, out in the um, the the heathered moors of of England. So. Anyway, um, it's just a super smart, super inventive book, and I really recommend it. Well, I'll definitely have to link yeah. to that one. Um, that sounds great. Yeah. And are you able to say anything about what you're working on next? Well, yes. I actually have finished a uh, contemporary novel that I'm very excited about. It's set in Richmond, Virginia, which is one of the places where I used to live. I lived there for 17 years and raised my children there. And it's called Of Monuments and Marriages. And it takes place in the brief um, two months of the summer of 2020. And it's about the marriages of two sisters. Um, Their marriages implode over the course of that summer. And it's set against the backdrop of the social justice protests 
that were very active there in Richmond, and also the removal of the Confederate monuments that was taking place. So Ooh, that sounds was, great. I love the title too. Oh, good. That makes me happy. <laughs> so yeah, I'm excited and I'm starting to shop it around and we'll see. I hope it finds a home. Yeah, so, that sounds yeah. great. Um, yeah, thank you. Thanks well, so I much. so enjoyed getting to hear um, more about Gilded Age Boston and publishing and your writing journey. And I really hope that listeners go pick up a copy of The Literary Undoing of Victoria Swan. I think especially anyone um, with ties to the Boston area will really enjoy kind of seeing this literary world um, hundreds of years ago come to life um, kind of in our backyard. And it was just yeah. wonderful for anybody who loves books about books, books about writers, um, all in my wheelhouse for sure. So I highly recommend it. And um, yeah, thank you for taking the time to come on and tell us more about the book. Thank you so much, Laura. This is really fun. And I really appreciate all that you do to help authors and readers. And you really connect us beautifully. So thanks so much. Well, thank you. And uh, best of luck continuing to bring the book out into the world. Um, thanks. For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review wherever you get your podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.